Let's begin with you introducing yourself. My name is Emma Lonzo, and I'm the director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Emma is an expert in the field of content moderation, a cultural and political gray area when it comes to free speech, and the conflict around that gray area only got worse when Peyton Gendron, an 18-year-old, killed 10 people last Saturday afternoon in Buffalo, New York. The horrific mass shooting was broadcast live on Twitch, the popular live streaming site, where millions of broadcasters produce content for tens of millions of visitors each day. Twitch moved quickly, removing the video of the shooting within two minutes of the broadcast starting. But even that quick work may not be fast enough. Emma says once that content is out there, the damage is already done. It is often very common for either the attacker or people who are working in concert with him or who just want to get that material out and shared more broadly um, to, to really begin a campaign of trying to upload the video, still images from it, associated content in a lot of different varieties and formats on services all across the web. Even though Twitch removed the video swiftly, it spread rapidly across social media platforms. Hours after the shooting, it was viewed more than 3 million times on a site called Streamable and shared hundreds of times across Facebook and Twitter. Social media sites generally don't want videos of mass shootings or hate crimes to show up on their platforms. And in 2017, four major tech companies, Facebook, Microsoft, YouTube, and Twitter, took action to try to stop that kind of content spreading across the social media landscape by creating the Global Internet Forum to Counter Terrorism, or GIPCT, an organization dedicated to the removal of terrorism or violent extremism from their platforms. This was sort of formalizing some information sharing that those companies were already doing about some really um, gruesome and atrocious content that they were seeing uploaded on their services. At the time, the, the main focus in the counterterrorism conversations was ISIS and Al-Qaeda content. And so you would have things like beheading videos or other kinds of depictions of really graphic violence that ISIS was trying to use to um, spread its terror and its messages around the world. And so services were letting each other know, you know, there's a new beheading video uploaded on my site. I think you probably want to take it down on yours as well. But the way the footage of the Buffalo shooting made its way across multiple social media platforms raises questions about this content moderation strategy. How effective is an organization like the GIFCT at moderating content in the ever-evolving social media landscape? Who gets to decide what is and isn't terrorism or violent extremism? And can platforms resist demands for regulation while keeping the web from becoming a cesspool? Today on the show, can social media be a convener and a cop at the same time? Does Peyton Gendron's attempt to use Twitch to livestream murder crystallize the content moderation challenge facing social media. I'm Ray Suarez, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and this is What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stay with us. As Emma explained, the big companies responded to extremist content spreading five years ago by banding together to share information, 
creating the Global Information Forum to Combat Terrorism, GIPCT. Naturally, governments wanted to get involved. There is definitely a lot of conversation um, and discussion amongst governments and companies and civil society organizations and human rights groups from around the world about how to handle this kind of content um, and what companies should be doing. The way GIFCT is currently structured, it is only the companies who are deciding what material gets put in the sort of the shared resource database that they have about content to block. Um, and from my perspective, it's really important to keep a firm line between governments and the kind of companies that are, are putting content into this database, because once governments start getting directly involved in saying that content should be blocked from online services, it raises enormous questions about um, kind of protection of human rights and the rule of law. But they want to be involved, don't they? I mean, that's what governments do. They want to be involved. That is what governments do. Um, they do definitely want to be involved, but it's it's important to understand sort of the different roles that governments and companies play in this area. Um, if you think about the way that any given online service moderates content on its services, you know, it has its community guidelines or its terms of service, and those rules and policies often go well beyond what a government could restrict under law, um, especially here in the United States, where the First Amendment provides very strong protection for freedom of expression from government regulation. Uh, most content, you know, promoting terrorist ideology, content depicting horrific real world violence, disinformation of different kinds, hate speech, a lot of that material will just be understood as protected speech under the U.S. First Amendment. So there's a real limit to what the U.S. government could do to try to limit its spread. For years, social media companies have resisted regulation by insisting they were able to police themselves and still keep a loose hand on the reins. At the same time, suicides, murders, advocacy of terrorism and political extremism on their sites were real problems for the business. But at the same time, you might not want to encounter that content on YouTube or Facebook or Twitter. Um, you might want to see those companies actually taking action against that content. And those companies, as private actors, have a lot more leeway in saying, you know, it might be someone's constitutionally protected speech, but we still don't want it on our platform and have rules and policies to take it down. Boy, that's the tension at the core of this thing, isn't it? I mean, the minute you even imply that there's some level of collaboration between the tech sector and government, you set off alarm bells for free speech absolutists, web utopians, people still willing to endorse the idea that the web can police itself in order to keep government out of there. But are we, are we coming to the limits of that self-policing? I think it gets exactly to that tension between what role can these different actors play? Um, and also the question of the, the technical capability to address content online. Now we are seeing many governments around the world really amping up their desire to exert control through law on how companies moderate content. Um, everything from the orders coming from the Russian government around blocking access to different social media services during the, um, the Russian invasion of Ukraine because the Russian government was not happy with how those companies were allowing people to call their invasion what it was, call it a, a war, call it an invasion. Not only Putin's Russia or Xi's China want to control what can be said on social media. The countries of the European Union 
home to hundreds of millions of social media users, are taking a closer look at regulation. But we also see governments in, uh, you know, democratic governments looking to try to exert more control over how companies make these different decisions. At the end of the day, though, there is a limit to what governments can do to restrict content online. And the kinds of moderation that individuals actually want to see that would make for a you know, positive or more functional experience on social media services might go well beyond what governments can do under international human rights standards. One possible solution? A kind of digital ID for forbidden content to help companies track it and block it. It's called hashing. Think of it like a fingerprint or a barcode that is associated with that image in particular. Then if you're running a a social media service and somebody tries to upload new content, you can run that same hashing algorithm on the new content and see if it generates that same fingerprint or that same barcode. If you get a match, you have a really strong degree of confidence that somebody is trying to upload content that you already know about and maybe want to block from your service. In the GIFCT context, this is one of the the main sort of tools that the GIFCT administers for the the member companies who are part of the initiative. Um, Companies that see different elements of terrorist content or violent extremist content on their services can hash that content, create one of these fingerprints, and then upload that fingerprint into a shared hash database. Other companies can then use this database to uh, basically examine or review content that's being uploaded on their services to see if anything matches. Do we have to be careful not to exaggerate the ease with which these messages can be removed, policed, blocked? Once images get into the web's bloodstream, even if they're hashed and you're using image recognition as a way to hunt it down, if it gets altered in any way, edited, additional graphics added, doesn't it become much harder to find? I think in GIFCT's latest transparency report, they talked about how they have about 320,000 unique images or videos recorded in their hash database, but it's actually more like 2.3 million hashes because you would see kind of many duplicates, many hashes associated with the same video or image where people have done something like put text on top of the image to, to change how it will look to the hashing algorithm. So that's what really makes it like a cat and mouse game for online services, especially when you have a really kind of active incident like was happening in Buffalo, where there was a stream and then people trying to reconfigure that stream and still images from it and upload it lots of places. There were hundreds of different variations of essentially that same two minute piece of content that companies had to kind of discover each time someone made a significant change to the content and uploaded it again. When we come back, is moderating content on social media too challenging to keep governments out? It's long been part of Silicon Valley's ethos, its operating system, you might say, that giving government even the smallest measure of control is a bad idea, something to be avoided, if at all possible. But as the number of users and platforms proliferated, did the task, keeping the worst material out, just become too hard? I've seen a lot of faith placed in content moderation by the companies themselves. And I wonder whether it's entirely 
uh, offense or defense or what? Is content moderation, among other things, a shield to fend off regulation or attempts at regulation? It may have been that in the past, but if it is, it's not working Um, because there is a lot of regulation that is under discussion in the United States and really significantly underway, for example, in the European Union. Um, The European Union, with its Digital Services Act, is going to totally transform how Europe looks at regulating online content hosting and, and content governance writ large. It will also start really sort of regulating the ways in which companies do content moderation. It will have more obligations in there about um, the kind of transparency and information that companies need to provide to users, but it will also propose codes of practice around different kinds of issues like disinformation um, and and really start having much more of a ongoing regulatory discussion about how are companies, especially very large online services, handling all different sorts of content that may pose a risk to individual users or to the public at large. One suggestion, seeing how unequal to the task companies can be, is to have robots do this, because you just can't hire enough human beings to be watching everything that's being posted on these services. But then uh, you get, as I was talking to somebody uh, the other day who called somebody they know an old dog, and it got taken down as um, insulting speech by one of the platforms. And the guy sort of complained on his on his timeline. Look, come on, I you know I've known this guy for years. I called him an old dog. Don't put me in jail for a day for that. There is a real limit to the ability for automated tools to understand context and nuance, let alone to grapple with different languages or different cultural contexts. We see a lot of different challenges exactly like that um, come up when companies really rely heavily on natural language processing tools or other kinds of machine learning technologies to try to help with content moderation. But moderation or automated content moderation is going to have a lot of different errors, both false positives and false negatives. Um, You're going to see obvious mistakes, mistakes that are really apparent to any human being who looks at the content, that this should not be considered a violation of any rule or policy. But an automated tool is not going to understand the surrounding context in a way that a human easily can and will probably make erroneous decisions. I don't believe that platforms want to show suicides, want to show attempted murders, want to show gruesome accidents. TikTok has proposed a a global coalition to protect against harmful content. You're now seeing the acronym TVEC around more and more, standing for terrorism and violent extremism content. But those terms, extremism and terrorism, are used in different places in the world to mean vastly different things. For instance, the Syrian government of uh, President Bashar al-Assad in that country's terrible civil war defines any opposition to the government in Damascus as terrorism and extremism. Are we playing with fire here when we try to understand international differences for a borderless internet? When you have a a term like terrorist and violent extremist content, it can imply that we all know what that is um, and that that We agree what that is. We agree what should fall within and without of the scope of that term. But there is no one internationally agreed definition of 
who amounts to a terrorist or a violent extremist. Um, and a big question here is, you know, who, who sets those standards and who makes those calls? So for the GIF-CT, for example, um, they tend to focus on content that is related to organizations that are on the UN sanction list. Um, that, and this is something pretty common across tech companies in general. They don't necessarily want to be in the position of trying to define who is a terrorist and who is not. So they point to something like the UN sanctions list or individual sanctions lists that different countries may create. That, though, means that they aren't necessarily covering the realm of violent extremists who don't fall on the UN's list. Um, for example, a lot of white nationalist groups uh, in the United States or in Europe don't show up on um, on the lists from the UN or other governments. So it can mean that their approach is very under-inclusive or focuses on one set of terrorist content, but doesn't actually uh, cover everything that they might. Can government, the industry, and users live with a world where excluding bad actors is going to inevitably sometimes take down less harmful, even perfectly innocent content? Can the business withstand a certain amount of collateral damage that comes with the act of policing social media? It's important that we don't just sort of presume consensus and barrel through because at the margins you end up with everything from journalistic content to people advocating or talking to people who are members of violent extremist organizations and are trying to de-radicalize them. Um, you can sweep in content that is depicting and recording uh, evidence of war crimes and terrorist activity that human rights defenders are trying to amass so that they can make, you know, make their case that there is an actual international crime happening here. Um, there is a lot of content that could fall in the margins. And so having clear definitions and a clear understanding of where people do and don't agree is really crucial. If you post a horrific crime, video of a horrific crime, by that standard, it might be taken down fairly quickly. But what if somebody wades into this world an hour or two later and praises the commission of that crime or expresses solidarity or sympathy with the person who committed it? Is that the glorification of a terrorist act? Is it the glorification of a terrorist act in one country and not in another? The answer is yes. There is actually a different sort of set of laws across different countries around glorification. So, for example, in the United States, praising or expressing support for uh, terrorist ideology or terrorist acts in general would almost certainly be protected under the First Amendment. But there are laws in countries like France that prohibit glorification of terrorism. It's a huge question for tech companies, but also for people, for the general public, of what do we want our rules and our standards around speech to be. Emma Lanzo is director of the Free Expression Project at the Center for Democracy and Technology. Thanks for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me. That's it for the show today. TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Tori Bosch. Joanne Levine is the executive producer for What Next. Alicia Montgomery is the vice president of audio at Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. We'll be back next week with more episodes. I'm Ray Suarez filling in for Lizzie O'Leary. Thanks for listening.